Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. My name is Richard Diaz. What I hope to do is introduce you to some amazing athletes and luminaries from the sports science community, and what has come to be expected, I'll provide some highly opinionated rants on all aspects of endurance sports and my current favorite, obstacle course racing. But before I get started, I want to give a shout out to Human Octane. If you're the kind of person who pushes the limit, then you've got to check out Human Octane Apparel training and racing apparel designed by OCR athletes, and these guys just get it. Everything they make dries lightning fast, has zippered pockets, is abrasion-resistant in high-contact areas without bulky padding. I've gotten to know these guys, and trust me, they're going to out-innovate the competition when it comes to OCR gear. Check them out at humanoctane.com. Now sit tight, grab a cup of coffee, and let's do this. All right, everybody, we are back. I have Miguel Medina with me, the Bird Dog Supreme. We got to give you a better title than that. You know, it was a good title initially when we first started out, but yeah, I think I think I need a promotion. We need I, to graduate. That I know, you know, else. it's. It, I think some people that don't know us or know you, they might think it's a little condescending, and and <laughs> so let's not do that anymore. Let's give you. Let's, have you got some messages about that? No, no, but you know, under their breath, they're probably thinking, "Wow, man, he really dogs this guy." Ah, dogs this guy. <laughs> oh, pun intended. Okay, so oh. let's come up with a. Let's come up with a, a new title. I think we should we should make a poll for Facebook and let them help because I I got I got I'm I got blanks, man. I mean, I've gone I've gone I've gone by some pretty. Interesting monikers. I mean, for a long time it was Funky Cole Medina from that terrible song from the '80s or oh whatever. So I don't, I don't dig that. Yeah. I'd rather avoid that. But that, but now that I've said it, it's probably going to stick, and people are going to be like Funky Cole. So, <laughs> All right, so uh, let's do this. Uh, what what we uh, ended up doing to well, what we're going to do is we're we've taken questions, and every time that we reach out to people and ask them for questions, we get hammered with questions which I love, by the way. And it's funny because, I don't know, I'm probably one of the older guys in podcasts these days. You know, a couple years ago, most people didn't know what the hell a podcast was. And I remember when I first found out about it, I didn't really know what it was either. But I'm I'm out there. I've been out there a long time. We're looking at some 1 million plus, geez, close to 2 million almost, people that have listened to the show over the last four years and finding That's like the population of Camarillo. Yeah. No, it's actually <laughs> four times the population of Camarillo. <laughs> That's pretty sick. Anyway, sorry. But the, but the point of the matter is I have interviewed almost everybody at one time or another. And 
it's hard to find somebody new to talk to that's really interesting, to be quite frank. And I find that most of the people that have gravitated to this show to begin with, they do so because they like the information they've gained from it. I hear that a lot. And I should also suggest that everything that I'm going to say is an opinion. It's my opinion. It's your opinion. And, you know, take from it what you like. Clearly, I like to believe that there's some merit to my opinion simply because I've been at this so long and doing so much work in the particular field. So I'm going to try to do the best I can to answer questions and give you the advice that I think is earnest. Um, m most people that know me know that if it comes in my head, it comes out my mouth, and I have no filter. So if, if you know, it was a dumb question, well, odds are if it's a dumb question, I won't even touch it, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's 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 say that you know there are some questions that maybe shouldn't be asked, but but yeah, for the most part, we I'd like to say if anything, we kind of stick to things that are that are science based or fact based, and not necessarily dealing with any snake oil or nonsense like that. And yeah, honest questions, not necessarily dumb questions. All right, so the other thing that I found, and I don't know what the the tail of the tape was. Do you have an idea how many questions actually got submitted? Uh, somewhere, I mean, aside from, I guess if we count the PMs, over 50. Oh, it was way over 50. There's, uh, I've, got over, <laughs> I've got over 60, 65 at least. All right, well, and, I got like 50 some. Yeah, and, and well, you know, odds are it's probably closer to 100 between us. And that was since yesterday afternoon. And I shut Facebook down while we're doing this show, so I don't even know if there's more coming. But um, what I've found is there's a common thread in the questions. A lot of questions about heart rate, which really I, I enjoy. I like to hear people thinking about how heart rate is incorporated in their training. And when we used to first do this, there wasn't a whole lot about heart rate. People were asking more so about the, that darn heel strike and why it's so great. Yeah, and then, and then the other – what are you playing with, man? Stop playing. I'm not playing with anything. Oh, there's kind of a rustling in the bushes sound you're making. I'm spying on people. Maybe we can call right, you I'll Russell. <laughs> there we go, Russell. Rusty. All right, I'm sorry. Anyways, I'll, I'll stop moving. All right, anyway, um, so the other thing that I found interesting – is there's a lot of questions about program design and whether they even use the term program design, the questions that were set out were lending towards program design. And before we get into these questions, there's a couple things that I would like to touch on. Number one, we're going to choose about three people from the questions that we got that we thought were good questions, and I don't even know who those people are yet. I guess it's going to come down to how well I think I answered or you answered the question. Yeah. Um, and ideally three people who haven't done this. Yeah. And then what we're, yeah, we're going to do is we're going to give them uh, free access to day two of a running clinic of their choice in this year. I should say that, right? So we Tons have options. Yeah. We got clinics around the country and they're welcome to attend day two if we choose them. On me, and so for those of you that don't know what that means, that's basically $175 value. The show that pays. What do you think? So generous. 
I think it's a solid deal. Yeah. I wish I wish I got that deal. Yeah, yeah, it's a good deal. <laughs> All right, so one more thing. I want to give a shout-out to our new sponsor, Human Octane. I just got a pair of their OCR training and racing shorts from them a couple days ago, and they're legit, dude. I'm not kidding you. If you, yeah, you know, it, it it pays. We're talking about all this information about training and what can you do for this and what can you do for that. And I'm all about, you know, finding things that are going to give you an edge. And listen, if you're uncomfortable in your shorts, if you're uncomfortable with the kit that you're wearing when you're racing, it's hanging on to water, it's causing you to chafe, all this type of thing, it's a problem. It'll slow you down. So you definitely want to make sure that you invest in some good gear. And I would highly recommend that most people that are into that type of thing look into humanoctane.com. They've got some great stuff. Tell Brent I sent you. All right, let's do it. Let's let you pick the first question and see if we can handle this. Question number one. All right, I really, I was really digging um, this one question. It was from Kevin E. Gregory Jr., Bubbles the Clown. Really great guy. Uh, how would you tailor training protocol to maximize performance in a stadium race? So Spartan Stadium Series. It's a much shorter, faster, and more intense race than any other outdoor Spartan. So would you still keep the 80-20 split, or would you spend more time training in the dark side, as Rich Diaz would say? Well, a couple things come to mind. First of all, I do uh, develop training programs for people that are doing stadium races and shorter duration races, whether they be in a stadium or otherwise. And so what I tend to do is I tend to tailor the workout for that shorter, more intense effort as we start to get closer to it, usually about two weeks out. So let's just assume that in a typical training protocol, the things that I feel are important ingredients in training, they don't change they just become more intensified, and they become shorter duration, more speed-oriented, and more ballistic. And there will probably be about a week, maybe 8, 10 days, leading up to an event where the intensity goes way, way up, and the duration of the training goes way down. So the focus is more fast twitch, just high-intensity when we talked about lactate tolerance training or the dark side, it's not really quite what I'm talking about. Dark side training for me is more of longer duration activities. When you're in a short stadium race, it's like we're not worrying about your metabolism anymore because you're going to get through it. It's just a function of how powerful you are to get through the obstacles and how, how much force production you can create in your sprints. So it's technique-based, and I think it's more intense. And then I also include a taper, incidentally, where the week leading up to the weekend, so like Monday to Friday, I would generally have a day off before the day before the race. I would have my athletes do something interval-based, the day before the day off, which would be as short as 30 minutes. So it uh, could be a, a function of just doing hill repeats. I generally have two days that are grip strength oriented, carry oriented. 
but shorter duration type things. So you may, for example, do a heavy carry interval type workout that may not exceed 30 minutes in total duration. That includes the recovery. And same thing with grip. And maybe somewhere sprinkled in there about a 30-minute recovery run. But for the most part, a week leading into that race, it's going to be taper time. Uh, we want you to be recovered. I think being recovered is more important than anything else. Incidentally, I've got guys on the East Coast that just got hammered by that snowstorm. And one of my guys, uh, Michael Day, who is shoving off to race three days in a row in Bermuda, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We had to scuttle most of the workouts that we had planned for him this week because his gym is closed and it's just too treacherous to go outside and try to do anything. So I said, you know what, your fitness is intact. I'm not really worried about you. You might even do better just to hang out, chill, relax, maybe a little stretch, a little yoga, something like that, and just go into the race confident that what preceded that week was in place and, and you're ready to go. So really at the end of the day, most of the work that you do is just to get rid of the jitters the, the week before. Yeah, I think I think getting rid of the jitters is is really important. Just making sure that you're coming in with a good headspace on that race because it's you know the stadium is so short. You know, they'll last anywhere between 25 minutes on the low end up to about 40 minutes on the high end. Um, I think as far as the 80-20 split, that's kind of you know especially when we're when we're talking about base building, I think it's really important for just about any program to have to have that 80-20 at least in in the base building phase. And then as we get closer to you know your your stadium a race if you will you definitely really have a hyper focus for those those intervals as you were talking about and for the higher intensity work that we're doing like you know those 400s or doing stair work or getting making sure to get that grip work in like switching off between doing something like 400 meter sprint followed by by a hundred meter jug carry up steps. And then at the top of those steps, knocking out a pull up with dead hangs and things like that, you know, really making sure that you're, that you're prepared for the type of things that you're going to face in the race and sort of mimic that. And, and like you said, that taper is, is, is essential. Unlike some of the longer distances, if you make a mistake in a stadium race, it can be the difference between first and 10th place or even worse. So yeah. Mike. Since, since we're on this taper theme, got Paul Prisco who asked a very similar question. He said, can you explain exactly what it means to taper prior to an event of 26 miles or more? Do you decrease intensity, mileage, frequency, or all of the above? And I think this is a really good question, and I've got a, what I like, like to believe is a pretty good answer for it, because I did a lot of research on tapers, and I found some really interesting studies where a traditional taper is where especially for marathon runners, they basically start backing off all of the work about two and a half weeks out from their yeah. race. And I mean literally cut their volume way back, cut out all the intensity, and just basically slow their roll until come race day. The, the philosophy is pretty much geared towards regenerating carbohydrate, trying to get your energy stores up, and not doing anything to deplete and, of course, giving the muscles a chance to recover. But I, I saw some interesting studies where what they did is they took, like, three groups. One group would go through basically a volume taper. They just took the weight or took the work away from them. And then one group would be doing high-intensity intervals, 
but the volume would come down as well. And then they, what was the other group? Um, anyway, they, they messed around with it about three, three or four different ways to Sunday. And all of the people in the group kind of cycled through, so they had a chance to experience the different phases of taper. And what they found was that of all the different methodologies that they employed, the people that were doing the high-intensity intervals, the week, I mean week of their race, but short duration, high-intensity, sparse with some days off, actually saw about a 21% improvement in their fitness going into the race. And the guys that, that busted the volume way, way down and took the intensity out, actually had a decrement in their fitness by about 8%. So whatever they were going into the taper, their fitness fell off about 8%. And the guys doing the high-intensity intervals improved by over 20%. So I thought that that was a big, big bump in, in my mind in respect to how to approach it. And I've been following that methodology with a lot of my athletes, where leading into an event, I'd have them do some short-duration, high-intensity intervals, even up into the week, and as you heard me just say a moment ago about this stadium race, the week of, I still have them doing things. And it really seems to to help to maintain sharpness, and it doesn't do much to detract from their energy stores. And because it's short duration as well, that doesn't seem to tap into their recovery or cause them to be less recovered. So that's what I've been doing with people, and I've had pretty good results, and so I'm sticking with that plan. I think also on the on the nutrition side of things, um, you don't really want to change a whole lot, right? Like you might make that last week before your event uh, a slight increase in like the amount of carbohydrates that you're taking in, just a very gradual increase, like maybe 50 grams or something like that extra a day just to make sure that your glycogen stores are totally like topped off before your event. Would you say something like that would be a good idea as well? I'm just asking based on some of the stuff I've read and, and, and things that I tend to adapt into into my tapers before longer events, like what Paul is asking. Yeah, well, clearly I think it's important to make sure that your carbohydrate stores are topped off. And you can go through all sorts of loading phases to try to get it done. And I know that there's people out there that have tried to do um, – you know, the whole carb loading mentality where they, they deplete their carbohydrate first and then they try to restock it. And that's a very dangerous process. If you screw that up, you're going to have a really bad day. So I think it's it's probably a fundamental approach to, to ensure that you're getting enough carbohydrates. So like you suggested, pumping up, you know, 50 grams, that's, what is that, about 200 calories or so. That's not, yeah, roughly. That's not that much more. I think that's a good idea. And probably more complex carbohydrates, probably a better, a better idea as well. You don't want to get this simple carbohydrate that just kind of passes right through you and doesn't seem to, to keep the spackle on the wheel, so to speak. You want to keep that going on. You want to obviously want to stay hydrated. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, of, of course, those, those are things that you want to take into account. But from a standpoint of the work, just clearly how the work lays out, High-intensity, short-duration, sparse with days off is a great way to approach the final week leading up to almost any event. And would you say that, like, cutting down – so, like, you, you used a very a very specific time frame, like two weeks out before, like, you know, a marathon distance or let's say, like, a 50K distance. Like, maybe two weeks out you're doing 
75% of your mileage that, that two week out mark. And then like by the end of the second week or by the end of, of that, of that week, you're cutting it down to like 50%. And then like by the end of, by the beginning of a week out from your event, would you say like 25% of your mileage and that 25% mind you is part of the, of the intervals that you would be mixing in there? Or, or would you say that's kind of like a bad, a bad way to approach it? Well, the, what's left out of the, the question is who the individual is and how much running they're actually doing. So for example, if you're upwards of 80 miles of running a week, you get to 25% of that volume, you're still putting in a lot of running. And then at the other end of it, you, you got people that their training is not spot on, so to speak. I've got somebody right now, and I'm not going to use her name. <laughs> She'll know who I'm talking about when she hears this. Wink, but, wink. But yeah, she's going to run the LA Marathon this week. And unfortunately, there was uh, somebody in the family that was ill, and she had to travel abroad. Now I'm really putting her under the bus, right? Um, but anyway, she, she, you know, lost two, two and a half weeks of critical training leading up to this race. And her having come back from this trip with basically two weeks out from her race, two and a half weeks out, I think it was, we started to pile in the work. We had, to, we had to try to catch up. And that becomes kind of an edgy thing as well because I like my, incidentally, we're talking about a marathon now. So I like my marathoners to put in a minimum of two 20-milers leading up to their event. And the first one is typically a base run. And the second one is going to have a little bit of salt in it, or a little salt and pepper. We're going to start playing a little bit because realize that if you can't run for 20 miles aerobically, then you're certainly not going to be able to run 20 miles with anaerobic components tied to it. So we want to find out, first of all, what does it take to run 20 miles aerobically? When I say what does it take, I'm talking about how long will it take you to run 20 miles aerobically. And that's going to give us a pretty good sense of where things are headed. And then from that, we start to learn from what we've done learn about the feeding strategies in the event, learn about when to hydrate, when to feed, and then employ that working strategy into the second event. And then we also start to think about where can we put the hammer down. Typically with my clients have a conversation based on the data we've collected to make decisions about how we're going to approach a race, strategizing, so to speak. And so we might say, look, you look good at 150 for the first da-da-da-da-da, we're going to try to punch it up to 160, 165 for this, and then we're going to let the you know the horses out of the barn when we get within striking distance. And so you should be able to create a negative split. You should be able to turn out better times towards the end. I don't like people to try to bust out of the barn fast and then end up getting crushed late in an event. I get a lot of questions that are about what to do the week before the race. It's never about that, folks. It's got to do with how you've been training throughout the year. You should have a very good sense of where things are. And, you know, we start talking about how much base do you need to have? How much high-intensity work do you need to have? Well, that all kind of bears itself out over time. If you're trying to make decisions like that two weeks out from an event, you've already screwed up. Let me go back to this question. Daryl Dorsey, actually a client of mine, 
He goes, there seems to be a proliferation of online coaching training programs popping up for OCR athletes. Can you talk about methods for athletes and coaches getting the most out of an online training relationship? How do you like that question? That's, that's, that's a great question. So I, I'm going to just jump in and say communication. If your coach isn't talking with you regularly, then there's something to be said about the quality of the program. I mean, I know you you are really engaged with, with all the folks that you work with, just as I am. And granted that, you know, sometimes um, some people are, are, are less communicative than others. There's definitely some folks who just like, just give me the workouts and I'll, I'll holler at you if I need you. And then there are some folks that definitely need some more attention. But either way, I think good communication is, is the, the fundamental thing that, that you need in a good online training program for starters. Well, let me say this, okay? I am not nearly as communicative as you are. You should probably spend more time physically talking to your clients than I do. On the other hand, I am looking at what my clients are doing every day. I see the outcome of their workouts. So, for example, I do not write workouts that extend beyond a week at a time for any of my clients. I have people beg me to do it. They want to look into the future. They want to think about what they're going to be doing three weeks out. And I have to be honest, sometimes if there's planning that needs to be done because they have events coming up or uh, time away, vacations, and they need to kind of wrap their head around where to stick the more key workouts, then we'll kind of talk about it, and then we'll try to arrange the workouts accordingly. I do this with clients that travel. Having said that, because I'm a data geek, if I give you a week's worth of work, and you do the work, then I see what you've done. I see what your cadence looked like relative to the pace. I see what your heart rate looked like relative to the pace and the cadence. I see the terrain that you ran on. I see more from that data than I will from you and I having a kumbaya conversation. And you could say, oh, I feel great. Everything's going really, really well. And then I look at the data, and in fact, you're screwing the pooch. You may not be doing nearly what you should be doing. And by the way, that's when you hear from me. Commonly, when I see things going awry, then you hear from me. I'm like, okay, why did you do this instead of what I had in mind for you? And so on and so forth. And then with time, I develop a relationship with my clients because I see the cause and effect relationship with the work we're doing. I know the events that they're leading up to, the A races, B races, or I talk them out of the, a lot of the B races. And so communicative, uh, I just want to be clear on this because I think that it depends on what your role is as a coach. And I know that there's a lot of guys that will get on the phone with you and they'll spend a lot of time with you on the phone. I'm not that guy for a couple good reasons. One, I will invoke the call or the communication when I see need. I will make comments when I see things aren't going as they should. I'm like big brother. I'm out there watching you. Now, if you get hurt, if things are going badly, then we start talking. Then we need to we have communication. I have people, as a matter of fact, just yesterday, one of my clients was having a little trouble with her Achilles. I said, I want you to take a picture of the area where you're having pain. Get a magic marker and put a mark where you're having pain. Send me that picture. 
I'm going to walk her through, probably get on the phone with her and talk her through some various modalities for mitigating the pain and trying to keep her on track, so to speak. So I'm there for you when you need it. The other end of it is when you send me data, I need information. I need to learn about you. This data collection process takes time, and I start to learn. When I start to see what you're doing and what the cost of work is for you individually, your workouts change relative to that information. So there's just a lot of information that's going back and forth. It just isn't a whole lot of kumbaya. It's two different approaches, man. You know, I'll, I'll be totally honest. Like the programming that, that I do with Yance, it's it's based on what I'm doing, you know. So if you're doing the same kind of stuff as me, and if you kind of want a, a bit more of a of a buddy relationship with your with your coach, then then that's that's what I do, man. I mean, I'm not gonna lie to you and and, and BS you. Um, I I really try and be there for my athletes, and and I'll be honest, the majority of my athletes are folks who are kind of more so along the 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 self improvement recreational line. It's not people who are trying to become elite athletes or monsters on the podium and stuff like that. So I, I use my own personal experiences of, I mean, to be completely honest, my, my personal experiences of, of injury, of failure, of this and that, and things not going the way that I wanted them to go so that that way they don't make the same mistakes, you know, and, and a big part of that for me is, is communication based, you know, and, and, um, and I kind of take a different approach as opposed to you. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I think I know that what you do works. I know that there's, I mean, shit, I, I, I know we talk about it all the time, but, um, it's, I think, I think just going back to what the, what the question was originally, as far as maximizing the, the relationship of an online training program, I, I'll go back to what I said, which was just making sure that you can communicate with this person, that this is someone that you want to, to, to work with routinely, you know, whether it's, it's just simply on a week by week basis, as far as programming goes and not necessarily having to do a whole lot of chatting or whether it's kind of taking the more, uh, handholding approach that I kind of do with, with my athletes in Yancey camp. I think as long as you feel that you have a good relationship where you can, hit this person up and say, Hey, I'm having this issue. And they're like, yeah, let me get back to you by, you know, X amount of time. I think that's a good place to go. And I know that your athletes, if there's something wrong and they reach out to you that you get in touch with them and vice versa, you know? Well, let me give you a, an example. I've got a fella that uh, is in Barcelona, Spain. Barcelona. He, he just ran his first marathon. He's an OCR athlete. Uh, he was working towards an, an ultra which he did, but leading up to that ultra, which was a very tough mountain race, by the way, he was going to run a marathon. And we worked closely developing a plan to get to that marathon. About a week prior to that marathon, we went and looked over the information that he'd been providing me for the last couple months. And through the time trials, through the workouts that I prescribed to him, with the information that he sent back to me, data like what his heart rate relative to pace was, what his cadence was doing, how he fared when he was hitting a hill or elevation changes, when he was dealing with altitude. I took all this information into account, and leading into the race, I said, okay, here's what I want you to do. And I prescribed an approach to that marathon based on all the data that I had collected over time. 
And my last parting word to him was, and keep in mind, he'd never run a marathon before. I said, I see you easily breaking four hours for this event. Now, going back to whether they're an elite or middle of the pack, this guy's kind of a middle of the pack OCR athlete. He's enthusiastic, but he's not won a race. Let's just put it like that. At the end of the day, he ran this marathon, and his response to me as soon as he finished was he ran a 3.29, okay? We were looking to break four hours. I was pretty confident that he was going to probably be in the 3.50 range, and I brought him into that first race conservatively, but I gave him the levity to put the hammer down once he got to one point in the race relative to the outcome of the first 18, 20 miles. He used the information. He went after the race. He ended up running a 329. I've got a lot. I mean, I could do this all day long where we, we have this come to Jesus meeting, look at the data, figure things out, and then we put people to work. When it comes to developing information for your clientele, I want you to think about gambling. All right? There are guys that will go up to a blackjack table and they'll count cards. They know how many queens, kings, or face cards are left in the deck. Make decisions about how they're going to gamble or bet based on the data that they've collected. Then you got people that just feel like, uh, you know, the gods are with me. I'm going to throw down a big bet. I'm going to try to win this. I'm just not that guy. And so when you give me what you did last week, I know what to give you this week. When you do what you were supposed to do this week, I'll make decisions about what you're going to do next week. So the relationship is tighter than people might think. It's just not as vocal. It's just not as like, you know, in your face and me patting you on the back. And you know how gruff I am. I'm old, man. I'm, I'm old. I'm just, I'm, I'm, that kumbaya thing is, I, I, came, I came from Detroit. I remember <laughs> I, I, I can remember I can remember sitting uh, in a coal shanty back in the 70s with an angry black man and he said something to me that is stuck with me forever. He said a pat on the back is 14 inches away from a kick in the ass. I put 30 years of experience into what I do. I put 20 years of clinical evaluation on athletes behind what I do. And I make decisions based on all of that. If somebody needs a boyfriend, I'm not that guy. I just chased a bunch of people off for sure now. It's okay. Yeah. Hit me up if you want to do the anti kick. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've we've um wore that out. We've really we've really worn out this question. Should we hit the next one? I think we should. All right. You want me to I'm hoping people will forgive me for being so gruff on the last question, but I like your analogy about the 14 inches, by the way. I'm going to start using that more often. I'm just going to start. That's going to be like how I, how I begin all business negotiations from now on. All right, all right, all right. Paul Shin. Paul Shin. Great question. Uh, with overpronation and the use of minimal running shoes for road and treadmill training-specific runs, do you suggest using support like inner soles or insoles, I guess, inserts, uh, to prevent as much arching over and potential long-term injury. So I'm assuming he's asking about putting inserts into your minimalistic running shoes. That's kind of what it sounded like. All right. The problem stems from poor running mechanics. Yep. 
When you are overpronating, exhibiting excessive pronation, you're going to start developing problems with the plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendonitis, things like this. And your arch is going to start dumping on you because you're changing the way you're trying to stabilize your body. If you don't correct that, you have no business wearing a minimal shoe to begin with. You can wear whatever shoe you want to. You can run barefoot, and the problem's still going to exist. You could put a hoka on. You could Well, I don't care what you put on. If you have excessive pronation and you're not strong enough to bear the load that you're throwing at it, you're going to hurt yourself. If you have to get to a place where you have to put an arch support in your shoe, you've already made a grave error, is my opinion. I, I just find that it's a rare occasion where I, I would actually tell someone, you need to put an arch support in your shoe. And the idea of wearing a minimal shoe and then turning around and putting an arch support in there is it's like, self-defeating. It's like drinking near beer, right? Yeah. O, o, what is it called? Odules? Yeah. O, Odules, yeah. It's not quite, almost there, but not quite. Yeah. Um, I think, I think you, I totally agree. And, and also maybe it'd be a good idea to find the difference between like overpronation and supination. So overpronation, right. It's when you're, when you're collapsing inward versus supination. It's when you're collapsing outward. Right. So with, with that being said, I mean, like if you're having this issue chronically and it's been something that's been going on, you definitely shouldn't be wearing a minimalistic running shoe. Maybe it's like you said, it's, it's an issue of running mechanics and it's something that needs to be looked at like at a clinic. Did I just say that? Yeah, I'm sorry. Now, would you say that there's some shoes that will lead you to have a higher likelihood of an injury? Like, for example, if you're wearing a shoe with a really high heel drop, running running mechanics aside, I mean, granted, like if you have crappy running form and running mechanics, like chances are you're going to be hurt in anyways. But would you say that there are some shoes that lead to a higher likelihood of injury? I think absolutely there are shoes that, will, that are going to be more likely to injure you than not. The, the higher your heel is, the more likelihood you are to have uh, injuries. And typically what ends up happening is when you have a high heel, you shift your center of balance. It causes you to pitch your foot out ahead of your body more often. causes you to overstride. It also causes you to develop a hot spot in your low back because your posture is going to be influenced by that ledge that you're, that you're putting your heel on. So you have to you have to lay back with your posture a little bit in, just in order to be able to see straight ahead. And that puts a tweak in your low back. And then it causes you to overstride. So the, a shoe with a higher heel has a, a greater potential to generate hip and back oriented in, injuries. And it can also cause, since it's causing you to overstride, it can also cause you to have late stage pronation. So there's, there, yeah, absolutely. The other end of the spectrum, I should say, that somebody that's been living in a shoe like that and just heard me say this and got out of it and tried to go into a zero-drop shoe, they're going to have a polar opposite effect because what ends up happening is their Achilles is so accustomed to be that much shorter, and now they've caused it to have more length, they're going to strain their Achilles. Some people get away with it. Some people cannot get away with it. Yeah. You have to make your way to that position over time. Gradual adjustment to the difference in uh, stack height in your heel is a big deal. That conversation is a show unto itself. The short story is if you're putting an orthotic in a minimal shoe, you're sorely confused. Don't do it. All right, let's, we've got to keep rolling, man. We're going to burn this clock up and we haven't done nothing. Next question, next question. That one's, it's, it's your turn. 
unless you want me to ask another one. Um, let's see. Let me just grab one. All right. Oh, here's a good one. Max Lindner. So it says here, instead of heart rate, what do you think about using a power meter like Stride or RPM Square to control training intensity, analyze improvements? There are a lot of tools and concepts available due to the broad usage in cycling. How do I get the most out of the training as a runner? All right, so obviously I'm going to have to throw somebody under the bus here. And do it. Yeah, well, I, it's unfortunate, I have to tell you, because... If somebody goes back into my archive, you'll hear me ranting and raving about power is the new frontier for running. And it could very well be that it is going to be that. It just is not that now. Not yet. It's just not there. And I was sponsored by RPM Squared for a couple years. And the owner of that company, great guy, I mean, just a great guy, and he has been trying his butt off to wrestle this this alligator, trying to find a way to get power to be a driving force in running. Anyone that rides a bike knows that most uh, competitive cyclists don't even look at heart rate anymore. They're focused almost solely on power output. The difference between what happens when you're on a bike and when you're running is it's you're in contact with the earth constantly on the bike. So there's no vertical oscillation thrown into the mix. So let me kind of see if I can do this right. If you push off the ground forcefully and it projects you, say, six inches in the air, that is a power outcome. So you're, you've created power, but the power was useless to your forward progress because it was going up opposed to going linear. So if you were trying to measure progress in your training relative to power output, you have to take into account what you're losing in that power from the vertical oscillation, that bouncing up and down. And they haven't figured out how to correct that yet. Now, he, he made comments about stride. Now, stride, what it tries to do is give you a sense of how much loading is happening on, happening on one leg versus the other. So in, in the respect to running mechanics, I think that there's some value in that, and I think that in the right hands, you could take that information and it can help to guide you in the right direction. But from a standpoint of comparing it to heart rate, heart rate is cost relative to yield. So if you run a five-mile event, and the outcome of that event is you finished it in X, and it costs you Y. You have two very critical components to consider. What it costs you to get there and how quickly you're able to do it. Where power is it's just all over the board right now for runners. And I just, I just think it's, it's, the time's going to come. Somebody's going to figure it out. They're going to find a way to get it worked out. But so far, nobody's got it worked out. It's just the science isn't there yet. It's not. But it's really cool. Yeah. Really cool. To, to well, look, and I tried. And uh, incidentally, we agreed to disagree the beginning of this year or the latter part of last year because I just could not in good faith promote the product any longer given what I found 
was just incurable. Uh, I gave them time. I, I really thought that they were going to try to get this sorted out, but it just just wasn't working. And right now, as far as I'm aware, there's no company out there that's producing a power meter that is effective in developing sound training protocols where energy costs and such are concerned. This is a good one. Uh, Mario Landaño. I think I said that right. That was really good. Uh, he says, um, when I do my aerobic runs, in the 150 beat per minute range, I average a 12 to 13 minute mile. It's really odd to try to keep 180 cadence at that speed. Should I stick with it? Or is it okay to have a lower cadence for aerobic runs? Running at a lower cadence doesn't seem to be affecting me during road races as I'm still averaging 100 steps, 180 steps per minute. Let's see that. Let's say that again. Running at a lower cadence doesn't seem to be affecting me during road races as I'm still averaging on. Okay, I don't understand the. the I, what he, I think I think where where is this question? Why why did I not see this question? Is this on know. your on I your regular old Q and I'd be curious to ask Mario. How long have you been running at 180? Like, what's your what, did you just start doing this a couple weeks ago? Have you been at it for three months? I mean, I can speak on personal experience. After I went to go work with you and I learned, you know, the magic of, of, of 180, so to speak, um, that, that there was some some adapting time to be made, or I, I guess some time for my body that, that needed to adapt to the changes in the form that I'm making. And so I slowed down, technically, I slowed down, um, you know, by maybe 30 or 40 seconds in my case, be, be, like as far as hitting that 180 and staying aerobic and it kind of sucked at first, but after about three months, I started to speed up again. And then by the time I hit the six month mark, I was running faster at the same heart rate, holding that 180. And on top of that, I was noticing that, that I wasn't having hot spots in the same places and I wasn't having the, the chronic issues that I was running into before or from issues with my cadence and with my mechanics that I hadn't addressed before. So, I mean, I guess maybe his question is more so along the lines of if I change my cadence no, I, from 180 I, to I, something else. I totally get what me? he's, I get what he's saying. And I know, right. I know what the problem is because right, I, I hear this a lot. I have people want to negotiate with me all the time. And here's the thing. If you find that you cannot function at 180 strides per minute, your mechanics are wrong. You're doing something wrong. If you need to be at 160, 170 strides per minute to feel comfortable, it's because you're overstriding. The gait cycle takes longer. That's why you're at that 160 or 170, because you're reaching further ahead of your body. Okay? If you land effectively, your ground contact is where it should be, it's pretty darn easy to get this done. And if you're stuck in the mud, see, this is the problem. And I've seen, pay attention, folks. A lot of people are stuck in the mud. They're trying to adhere to this 180, and they, they're like a buzzsaw. Their stride length is about three inches long, and they're just butchering the ground. It's like, you know, a Ginsu knife on a tomato, man. They're trying to get it done. But they're finding that they think that they need to constrain their stride in order to achieve this, and it slows them way, way down. It's either going to cost you way, way too much, or it's going to slow you way, way down. 
He's just not finding the mojo. He's not getting the stride to work for him. And I've had this, I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody come to see me and have the same frustration, and in a matter of 10 minutes, I have them, I have them running at 180 strides per minute and running faster than they had ever run before. Now, I'm not talking about sustained speeds, but it's like I have a game now where I everybody that comes to see me, I have them show me a six-minute pace run. And they're like, whoa, how did I just do that? It's because we organized their stride mechanics in such a way that they flowed with the ground. They did not impose any braking forces. They weren't reaching it well ahead of their body. And they allowed their stride to open up behind them. And you'll start to notice that it gets easier and easier and easier. And the outcome is you get faster and faster and faster. So the, the negotiation that he's looking to make, which is to lower his stride frequency, he's saying, hey, I'm not getting hurt, so it should be okay. It, I don't care whether you're being aerobic, whether you're being anaerobic, whether you're doing hill repeats, whatever it is you're doing, if you're violating that stride frequency, you're doing yourself a, bit, a disservice. On that point, I have a lot of people that will take exception with the fact that I'm trying to push everybody on 180 strides per minute. Commonly, that stride frequency is the most efficient. Let me say commonly and let me say generally. If you are not even aware of what your stride frequency is, odds are it's taking too long to complete the gait cycle, to change your forward leg with your, or transition your forward and, tra and trailing leg. And that is usually a result of you overstriding. And overstriding is always a bad idea because you're making contact with the earth ahead of your center mass, you're imposing a braking force, and everything is working against you at that point in time. The other end of it is the stride frequency, if you're fixed to a particular number, you're going to start developing what is called bilateral equivalence. That means that one leg is not doing all the work. And this happens often. You see people getting injured all the time. It's never both legs at the same time. I pulled a hamstring. I strained my calf. It's never both legs at the same time. So what happens is there's a preferential loading pattern on one leg. One leg's doing all the work. If you, if you were to use a metronome and lay it in at 200 strides per minute, if you can sustain it, at least both legs will be sharing the load equally. Same thing would be the case at 170. But the problem is, is the slower your cadence, the more creative license you get, the more bounding up and down you're doing, it just, I'm telling you, I, this is what I do. This is my day job every day. I find more often than not, let's not say that. Let's say all the time. When I get somebody jigged in to running well at 180 strides per minute, I start hearing all the, you know, the accolades of improvements that they're seeing. Their times are dropping. I did a clinic, by the way, just this past Sunday. One of my clients, uh, I'm going to give a shout-out to Omar Padilla. He told me that for the last four years, he was stuck at a 19-minute 5K PR. Sunday morning, he ran seven, 17 minutes. I've been training Omar for three months. He dropped two minutes from his PR in a 5K. 
he dropped 15 minutes from his half marathon time. And incidentally, when he came to me, he was injured. The chief difference was we caused him to stop overstriding. We helped him to learn to improve his cadence frequency, to get it up to around 180 strides per minute. He's got it locked. It's working for him. His times are dropping. He's beating his buddies. It's all it's all good. So I just don't want to hear all the quibble about, uh, oh, you know, so-and-so says that that stride doesn't have to be like that, and so-and-so can run at this stride, whatever. Look, well, a good plan today is better than a perfect plan tomorrow. Chris Mendoza says, for an endurance athlete looking to run long distance, say, he goes, uh, run long distance, let's say 50-plus miles, how do you balance VO2 max and time on feet training? Do you still adhere to 70, 20, 10 for all athletes, or does it depend on your baseline strengths, i.e. endurance versus high intensity? So when he says balance your VO2 max, I'm trying to get a sense of what he's really talking about. I think he's trying to compare intensity to volume, and he's given me these ratios, 70, 20, 10. Um, first of all, th again, this comes back to these periodization questions, program design questions, and and I've seen this 80-20 come up a couple times. People are looking at my book that I wrote nine years ago for marathon runners. I have not been offering 80-20 ratio to clients in OCR. I have people start, if I was going to start, at about 60% aerobic conditioning, 20% motor skill development, 20% lactate tolerance training as a ratio of time dedicated per week. And then we change. We phase from one share of intensities to lesser shares of intensity. So let me say it this way. 60-20-20, 50-20-30, then eventually 70-30. If you were to look at, if you were to take time, let's just say that we're going to operate in five-week increments, five weeks dedicated to phase one, five weeks to phase two, it would be like that. It would be like, 60% lion's share of the work you're doing is going to be aerobic to develop that aerobic base. 20% is to work on skill. 20% to work on lactate or over threshold training and hill repeats. And then you'd go, you back off some of the volume on the aerobic conditioning, increase the lactate tolerance training in the next phase. And then in the following phase, Assuming you had 10 weeks of good motor skill development under your belt, you got you got your mechanics organized, we don't need to dedicate all that time to that function. So what we do is we add it back into our aerobic conditioning because there's, there's never a time when you can do too much aerobic conditioning. But you definitely need to increase the, the volume of your lactate tolerance training as you, as you start to get into race season. You want to be able to put the hammer down. You've got to spend some time doing it. That actually brings me to a question that Courtney Knapp, you know Courtney Knapp? I know Courtney Knapp. Courtney Knapp said she, was, she was asking this question for one of her friends. But she was asking, how do you make a decision to get away from the base training to move on to more intense stuff? So in other words, she's asking me, how do, what, what's the trigger to make the transitions from one uh, phase of training to the next? You, see, you like how I put those together? I like that. At what point do you shift from one to the next? Time trials, baby. you got to do the time trials. So let's just say that hypothetically you began training today. We've identified that your aerobic zone, the top end of your aerobic zone, 
we use 150 a little bit. So let's say 150 beats per minute. You yeah. do a time trial. I don't care how far it is. Uh, depending on your level of ability, let's just say you've got a lot of experience as a runner and you're just going to try try a new trick. Let's do a 5K. Run a 5K at 150 beats per minute with good form because form is the catalyst for metabolic adaptations. If you run poorly, it gets expensive. So you have to keep your form in check. So if you're running... 150 beats per minute, 4 or 5K. Let's just say hypothetically you ran a 20-minute 5K. Then you start plugging in the ingredients of your training and you start putting in some tenure. So you got a, a month or two of, or a month and a half of training at those ratios and progressively increasing the volume, depending on what you're doing. If you're increasing the volume, say, by uh, 10% every other week, uh, let me just be more clear. Let's just say that you started out running five hours a week, and then you add 10% in two weeks, and then you add percent, you add 10% uh, on week four. Then after, say, five weeks or so, you do another time trial at the same heart rate. Lo and behold, you're running an 18-minute 5K, and it's not costing you more money. Well, your body has made a metabolic adaptation. Your body is shifting. So that gives you allowance. Now you're able to take on a little bit more intensity. You're, you're able to get rid of some of the aerobic conditioning that you were putting in and start focusing on some of this over-threshold work. Now, the difference in philosophies between what I suggest to people and what is traditional among a lot is referred to as linear versus nonlinear periodization. Linear periodization is something that I think was laid out by Arthur Lydiard. Not Lydiard, Lydiard. Good old Lydiard. Yeah, and Lydiard would have people spend 10, 12 weeks doing nothing but aerobic conditioning. He said that the bigger the base, the higher the peak, which I liked. I thought that was kind of cool. So the more aerobic base that you have, the more potential you have to put on high intensity later in the in the game. The problem is, is that he would divorce the aerobic conditioning and move on to higher intensity work after he put in that base. Well, when you shift the type of work you do away from the aerobic conditioning, you sacrifice the gains that you made when you were being aerobic. And I think that when you invest that much time and energy into gaining the value of those aerobic uh, benefits, then you certainly don't want to lose them. So I don't like working linearly. I like to keep my hand on the aerobic conditioning, but keep the intensity in play, keep you sharp. Neurological adaptations are very, very important. And if you don't sprinkle them in there, here and there, you're not going to see the type of improvements you want. So at the end of the day, uh, nonlinear periodization, shift away. Use time trials as a way to determine whether you're seeing the progress you're looking for. Incidentally, if you were to do that second time trial and you're not seeing the progress that you were hoping for, you stay there. You don't shift to the next level of uh, training until you, you've accomplished your task. Wow. I'm with you. Dude, we, we, need to, we need to get you some calories, man. You've been going hard. I know. You know what it is? I've been working in the yard. What you you put in yard work? Yeah. Is that your is that your daily aerobic conditioning? Dude, I ran I ran to a park today, 
I punched out uh, 100 push-ups, some pull-ups, things like this, and then ran home, grabbed a shovel and a pick, and went to work. I am beat down. I'm proud. Really proud of you. Now you're, start, you're starting to turn into an OCR athlete. Are we going to see you break out into the, uh, into the Masters category soon? No. Let's, <laughs> let's grab another question. All right, one more, one more. Which one do you want to go for? I'll let you pick one. You know, I'm gonna. I've been I've been kind of itching for this one from from John Lynch, man, because this this one kind of ties in directly to what you just said. So, John, uh, my running duration—that is, the time that I'm able to run at one time without stopping—hasn't improved. My heart rate has improved in that I can stay aerobic around 140, but after a half mile, sometimes less, I need to stop and walk. How do I improve that? Because I think I should be able to run at least a mile without stopping by now. I'm hurting. I, I, uh, this is this, I mean, this kind of taps into what you said as far as like making sure to not really advance into that, into that next zone or not go into the next phase of training that you kind of got to stay where you're at. Well, I just need more information. I, and I know John, I've worked with John. Matter of fact, the information he's using to, to follow is he got from me. But when you tell me that you have to walk, but you're able to stay aerobic, I'm trying to figure out what's causing him to stop stop running. So what I'm saying, I'm thinking that he's stopping his because his heart rate is climbing. You know, like well, he's then, on the run, and let's say he's at 140, and then suddenly he'll like make a big jump in the middle of the run, and maybe he'll go anaerobic. Well, th- that tells me that he's not staying aerobic. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. there's a couple things that could cause him to to stop. And I've instructed people that when your your theme for the day is to be aerobic you either stay at that heart rate or lower. What he should probably do is slow down even more. If 140 beats per minute is shutting him down after a mile, the intensity is too great for him. He's going to have to slow down a little bit. Now, we know John's a big boy, and the cost of doing the work, he probably starts to overheat. Uh, there's so many variables that can get in the, in the way of his ability to or inability to continue to, to push on. But I would suggest that if he needs to walk, so be it. If it's a function of his heart rate climbing, he should he should back off, or Kill maybe back. or maybe try to rein it back even a little slower. Maybe he needs to put in more volume. And I I also know that that John does a lot of racing. For a big guy, he likes to fatigue. He's ambitious. He gets out there a lot. So it could very well be he's chronically dehydrated. It could very well be that he's undernourished if he's trying to drop weight. There's so many things that are suspect here. What kind of puzzled me was him saying that I can stay aerobic at 140 beats per minute, but I have to walk after a mile. That told me that he just either is going over threshold or he just can't sustain the work. It's shutting him down for one reason or another, whether it be pain or what. But I, I, you got to hit us up, John. Yeah, call me, John. Let me find out what's going on. Kumbaya time with Richard. Yeah, hey, I, you know, listen, I might have, I might have, I might have painted an ugly picture, man. Uh, it's if, time for some kumbaya. If somebody says they need some help, I'm, you know, I, I spend my day giving information to people. Every day, my my phone starts ringing at five o'clock in the morning. All right, so let's go on. Let's find somebody else. All right, man. What other one? Which one are you itching? 
Let's get away from this for a minute. Okay, wait a minute. Let's do this Matthew Brown one. What do you say? The the guys from NorCal? Yeah. The NorCal guy? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I like this one. Okay, Matthew Brown. Hello, Richard Diaz. I help run a few gyms in Northern California, NorCal Strength and Conditioning, and NorCal Strength Conditioning Maryville. Probably the same group, right? Uh, we have an OCR class dedicated to getting folks ready for Spartan and other various OCR races. Most of our clients typically get a few OCR-specific classes a week. Short run interval mixed with obstacle-specific strength and technique work. When suggesting running outside of the gym for the general masses, the non-serious athlete, non-competitive, who just want to get through OCR races, typically not focused on winning, but getting through the races, what would you suggest be the best training strategy for running during the week relative to distance, heart rate, and frequency? All right. So I'd like to believe that a couple things need to be in play, and I don't care whether you're competitive or not. One of the things that needs to be in play is your aerobic conditioning. And when you talk about during the week, you also have to realize for a lot of people, life gets in the way. And I find that typically most people can dedicate about an hour worth of training during the week. I would like to see if I had to pick, let's just say they're going to run three days a week aside from the other training they're doing. I'd have two of those days be base runs, which were aerobic. And one of them would be probably hill repeats because when you run up a hill, likelihood is you're not going to run poorly meaning that you're not going to you can't overstride running up a hill. And if you hammer up a hill, you're going to improve your fitness. So the high intensity work is to improve your fitness. The low intensity long duration work is to improve your peripheral values, help to cause your body to use fat fat as an energy source more effectively. So I would I wouldn't say one thing or another and I don't think it's exclusive to people that are not being serious or not trying to win. I think that there needs to be a mix of work and as I suggested in the periodization that there are three components in play, something to work on your motor skills, something to work on your aerobic conditioning, something to work on your fitness and your lactate tolerance. If you pick 3 days a week, that's what I would do. If you could put in a little bit longer run during the week sometime, aerobic conditioning would be the way to go. And if you're feeling really lazy and you really don't want to run, get on a rower. Do something for your heart. Uh, let's see. I'm looking, looking at questions. Um, there was a you, – you touched on something with the uh, rower, and I was trying to find that question. Somebody was asking me um, if you were having an injury – what kind of cardio should you get? And I think you just answered. I, I like the concept two rowers. I think that's yes. big, high-intensity cardio workout. And if you can't use your wheels and you want to maintain your fitness, I don't think there's a better tool for that. Okay, there was a bunch of questions on a thread, and I don't have them on here, but I can remember who it was. Anyway, there was a bunch of questions that were posed about People talking about their resting heart rate versus their max heart rate. Yeah, it was Cole Schwartz. He was saying, yeah, I got my heart rate goes way, way up to yeah. this. 
and but my resting heart rate's way down to this, and so and so's heart rate's lower, or so and so's heart rate's higher. Get off that. Everybody's different, and it comes down to this: the size of your heart, the stroke volume, cardiac output. It's got to do with your peripheral values. Your heart is a pump, and it's trying to provide for the body. If you have a preponderance of fast-twitch muscle fibers, these fibers are dense. They're not very porous. They don't accept oxygen very readily. Your heart will have to pound harder to drive the oxygen to the working muscles. That doesn't mean you're not fit. That just means that the way your body is receiving this blood flow that you're sending to it is a little bit more challenged than someone that may be, for example, less fit, but has a higher percentage of slow twitch muscle fibers. There's so many things that go into play again, again here. Uh, you could have a smaller heart. I've done VO2 tests on a team of outrigger canoeists in Los Angeles. Actually, it was Marina Del Rey, and I think it was probably eight or ten years ago. Did a whole team of these women outrigger canoe rowers. I had a girl standing on a treadmill. Her heart rate was 120 beats per minute before she even touched anything. She was punching up on 220 beats per minute and was totally fine with it. But her aerobic potential was really high. I'll have people that have really, really high, high heart rates but have terrible thresholds. It's just It just is what it is. I've seen people with really, really low resting heart rates. I've seen people with higher resting heart rates. It isn't a function of you being fitter or less fit. It's just kind of an anomaly. It's kind of who you are. Now, how your threshold plays into this heart rate response is far more important than whether or not your heart rate goes way up or not. But there's so many, there's so many variables that come into play here. How well your body receives the, the, the blood that you're delivering it, how much resistance, peripheral resistance you're getting as you're starting to deliver that blood, how large the chamber is to begin with. All of those variables come into play, which will indicate what your, your unique characteristics are in respect to your, your, your heart response. Cool. Don't trip about your heart, dude. Everyone's heart rates are different as far as what their max and what their minimum and their resting and all that stuff is. Don't focus so much on that. Just focus on what do you got to get done for training, dude. He's coming right? to see me next it's, week. There you go. He's a stud. You're going to have so much fun with him. That kid. That kid's going to kick butt, like major butt as far as racing. I've got Johnny, so Johnny Luna's coming with him. Oh, nice. God, I'm so jealous. You guys are going to have so much fun. All right, let's get another question. This thing is dragging on. Killing me. I know. It's 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 me or is it you? I think it's a little bit of both of us. We just both have a lot to say. I got a good one. I got a good. You know <laughs> what? Right. It is? It's been a while. That's what it is. Here's it has. We this, just don't get to catch up like usual. I uh, got a question from Brant Boggs. All right. When transitioning to midfoot striking, what should be expected? Are there some normal pains during the transition period? As your body adjusts to the new running form? Well, clearly he's probably feeling this and, and the answer is yes you soreness are, oh yeah and so you're going to find that when you make that transition getting onto new musculature ligaments tendons it's going to come at a cost and you have to be careful i'll tell you what lately 
I have been very, very careful when I talk to my clients to remind them as they make this transition that they have to slow down. They have to cut their volume back. They have to allow their body to adapt to this transition. Otherwise, you can cause trouble. You can end up straining a muscle. You can end up straining ligaments. This whole issue with plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendonitis, calf strains, all of these ugly, ugly things come from abuse. If you put too much into it, and the other end of it is, while you're trying to work it out, you make mistakes. And if you're making mistakes as you're trying to transition, this erroneous ground contact can cause trouble all by itself, especially when you think you're doing it right and you try to do more of it and you find that you're actually doing something wrong and it's hurting you. So absolutely expect some soreness. If you continue to see soreness after, say, two weeks, then odds are you're doing something wrong. I find that generally within two weeks, the transition starts to take hold and people adapt and they get back to business and things are just rosy. If you're not seeing adequate adaptation, you're starting to find undue soreness, you have to check your work. You're probably doing something wrong. I think it's also important to note that, you know, soreness, uh, as a general guideline, some soreness is good. Pain is where you want to stop and look at what you're doing. But let's, uh, let's take two more. You pick one, I'll pick one. Oh, um, tell me what you think of this one. This one's from Seth Basie. He's a fellow Yancey camper. Uh, when trying to train for – God, man, I love how people write this stuff. When trying to train for – slash achieve and potentially maintain a competitive OCR race pace, for example, six minute mile or whatever it needs to be. Is it best to set heart rate as a barometer for measure of achievement or is it best to set the intended pace as the goal, despite the metabolic consequences and heart rate reached when running at quote unquote race pace? That's a good question. And, and he has a kind of little follow-up to it, if you want to address that, too. Since heart rate can be a measure or a function for the energy system being used, of effort and efficiency, is it important to stay aerobic as much as possible? This becomes a concern because it's easy to cross over to anaerobic and thus suffer running mechanic breakdown, as well as having to slow down. Basically, what's the best way to become a fast runner and have the benefits of both metabolics and speed? Wow. Well, yeah, you, you yeah. know, the good news is Seth has come into Austin, Texas, to one of our clinics. So nice. we're going to work this out. But uh, the short answer is this. You have to take a look at the distance of the event that you're planning for to suggest I'm going to try to run a six-minute pace. Well, that's all well and good if you're capable of running a six-minute pace. Your heart rate is what it costs you to run that six-minute pace. And if you find that in order to run that six-minute pace, your heart rate is going to be near max and the event is longer than should be, it's not likely that you're going to be able to do it. You're going to blow up. So the metabolic inefficiency, let's just say that you're, let's just say it's a short race. Hell, let's say it's a super. Let's say you're planning to get done in an hour and a half. You probably got enough energy to finish that event regardless of how intense you go after it. But if you go anaerobic and the ensuing lactate production starts to inhibit function, it's going to shut you down, regardless of whether you're out of gas or not. 
So I don't like to focus on an end game unless I know that my end game is in my wheelhouse. So we're going to kill two birds with one stone here. And somebody else ask about heart rate while racing. I'll tell you what, I'm getting to the point where I tell people, I don't even care whether you wear a heart rate monitor when you race. A lot of people found it uncomfortable to wear that chest strap when they're racing. If you've done everything you're supposed to do in training, you have a pretty good sense of what's going to happen when you race. And you should not have to wear that, that heart rate monitor unless I've asked you to do it so I could just see the data. But at the end of the day, don't freak yourself out by looking at your heart rate monitor while you're running. You should have a pretty good sense of what the outcome is going to be relative to the intensity you're throwing at yourself. And so it's a, two, it's a two-pronged thing. Um, if you know you're redlining and you know you've got more to do and probably in over your head, then you've you got to rein it back. I like heart rate as a metric to determine how to create adaptations in the body. Yeah. So you use it as a tool. Now, exactly. you don't want to be a slave to it while you're racing. No, exactly. See, this is the importance of this data collection. This is the importance of having the, the assessments conducted so that you know what it's going to cost you to do what you're doing and whether you know if, if you're seeing the improvements you're looking for. It's confidence going into these events that's critical. The training and conducting yourself with heart rate and all these different metrics that you're using in your training is how you develop the training or the racing plan that you're going to have. You know, we could look at this information and make decisions about how you're going to race. But you just don't want to, I mean, don't throw me a question blindly and say, what, do you think I should try to hang on to a six-minute pace? Hell, I mean, it could be a little slow for you. <laughs> you know, I don't know you. I mean, if, you, if, you're, uh, if you're just looking at pace, I don't know. I, I just, what is it going to cost you? That's, that's what you really want to look at. All right, you got one? Or was that yours? I think that was that was both of ours. That was mine. I believe that that was mine and yours combined. We kind of segued directly into it. Um, let me see. I mean, yeah, because we talked we talked about that that pace. We talked about you know uh, you know efficiency. I mean, I and then you went into yours. So I think we're I think we're good. I don't know. I mean, there's. Do you wanna do you wanna touch on another question? Let's grab one more and put a fork in it. Uh, you know, I, I by the way, I should say this. Number one, I apologize to those of you that if you didn't get your questions answered, we run into this a lot because we always get more questions than we have time for. And we've always promised that we're going to address them the next time around, and we never do. So We're saving a Word document this time, right, Richard? You're saving that Word doc? I have it. Yeah, I do have it. So, okay. Yeah. Hold on. Now, you, it's on you to remind me to use these questions. All right, I'm right. Oh, you, you know, know what? what? We got to address that Jack Bauer question. Oh yeah, yeah. All right, here's our final question. Jack, Senor Bauer, hold on. Let me let me pull it up. I really this was an awesome question. Jack, by the way, great guy. He's a hero. Uh, obviously, there is a lot of OCR, a lot of talk about the OCR at the Olympics and the forming of an official OCR governing body, etc. Let's pretend that Richard gets nominated to be in charge of the future of OCR, and he can change slash keep anything he wants to as far as progress. One, what would he do differently to make OCR a respectable sport on a worldwide age? Two, who would be your picks for the podium if OCR gets to 2020 Olympics 
in a 5K distance, male and female. All right. First of all, I think the the direction that the the Olympic Committee or all those that are involved in the direction of the sport leading towards a potential Olympic birth uh, is taking a road that I don't appreciate. I don't want to see the Olympics turn this into a spectator sport that is conducted inside of 30 minutes. I think that the sport of obstacle course racing has an element of suffering in it that needs to be maintained. So what I'm saying is that, you know, turning this into kind of a stadium race with, you know, 20 or 30 obstacles in in a a 3K distance, it's just going to change the complexion of the sport. And quite frankly, as a consumer, if I was going to watch the Olympics and that was the format that this sport was going to take, I'd be disinterested in watching it. I'd probably want to watch something else over that timeline. I'd rather watch a track and field event. I'd rather watch, uh, for example, a, a decathlon, if it was going to come to that. Because what the, the Olympics is trying to do is put a square peg in a round hole. I think that the event should maintain the purity of, of the, the essence of suffering, terrain, dealing with uh, the various elements of the environment, that to me is what obstacle course racing is all about. So if I had my way, I would either tell the Olympic community to pound sand unless they allowed us to push this event out there to the public uh, in its virgin essence. And I think that probably a super distance would be my choice. I'll, I'll chime in briefly as, as someone who's been doing this for a while. Keep the heavy carries. Keep the tire flips. Keep the misery that makes OCR what it is. I mean, like, don't get me wrong. I'm down for, for having tons of rigs all over the place, and I'm down for, you know, uh, we'll, go, we'll go the whole burpees versus bands thing. Like, yeah, throw out the burpees. Who cares? You know, uh, I'm with you on that. But I, I definitely think that, that pulling, you know, maybe making two sacks divisions like having like the stadium series olympic event and then having like the trail series olympic event would be a good idea because then that way you're kind of you are getting the best of both worlds you know um i think in terms of a spectator thing like the the stadium thing can work but i think the trails is is like you said it's where it's where it was born it's where its virginity was was reserved so to speak you know the trails the trails and the suffering and the carries and the and and the uh and just the need for grit and wherewithal is so important in OCR, you know. I mean, we, you know, I, I kind of hold hold obstacle course racers and all endurance athletes like to another standard in that we are we we are kind of a little bit of a of a masochist. And when you put it in a stadium, it just it's like you're you're corrupting it. Like you're you, it's just it's not the same. It's the tail wagging the dog. And I feel like this is kind of what's happening. The Olympic Committee is probably saying, well, if we're going to introduce this sport, we're not going to get into the big production. We're going to give you X amount of time. We want to throw you into a stadium and blah, blah, blah. And they're chasing that down. So I would, I would say that if it's too early to go into the Olympics, so be it. There will come a time where 
Maybe maybe it's just not the sport for the Olympics, is what I'm thinking. And then the other end of it is I would I would probably minimize the potential strong arming from governing bodies that are for profit out there driving the sport at the moment. Was I careful about how I said that? I think you were careful enough. Yeah, that was good. That was good. Uh, what do they say? Walking on eggshells. Well, you know what I'm saying. It's, it's like when you get into this situation where it's an Olympic event, it's a global event. It changes the dynamic of everything. And and I just don't know. Maybe this isn't even the sport that should be in the Olympics. Do you do you think that it'd be a good idea to do standard like uh, to a certain degree standardization? I mean, obviously, you kind of have to standardize like a standard weight for a tire flip for men and women, a standard weight for an atlas carry, a standard distance and uh, rig variety, like a standard rope climb, a standard uh, object or projectile throw. <laughs> you like how I'm alluding to to certain. Things. No, no. But look, at the end uh, of the day, at the end of the day, when you start shaving it down like that, it starts to take the appeal away from it. I think that the the uh, never knowing, constant change, just get out here and you know may the best man or woman win. I think that's what makes this thing as powerful as it is. And when you start to get away from that type of drive, uh, you take the grit away from it, you take the mud away from it, you start to clean it up, dress it up, you start to lose the value. I I, I actually think it would probably tank the sport in the long run so that's my feeling now having said that part two you got you gotta you don't don't forget about part two i'm going there right now so who do i think would podium in the event that they were to put this event on well first of all eight to ten miles eight to ten mile that's what you said i mean his question was 5k but you said your distance and your if you were to change things so you're just changes not a 5k it's an eight to ten miler okay do your picks eight to ten miler uh, we haven't met that person yet, or those people yet. They're not they're not on the horizon yet. We're looking at probably somebody that's at this point in time because we're talking about 2020. Is I think he he made that comment. He said 2020. Yeah, that's right. So three years from now. Three years from now, that kid is 17 years old right now. That girl is 17, 18 years old right now. Um, they're in the fix right now. They're they're making their bones, they're paying attention. You know, I got people that come to me that are trying to measure themselves against the top guns. You know, they're saying, well, what do you think? How close am I to so-and-so? And how close am I to, you know, look, there's a lot of young, hungry, learning, capable athletes out there that we haven't met yet. And, yeah. you know, to go back to the current, you know, standards and athletes that are in the sport today, I think it's going to be a completely different animal just in three years. That's what I'm thinking. I just don't think we've met those people yet. All right. But uh, just to, you know, you, just you to indulge a, Jack. You come back with a guy like, for example, you're talking about Cole Schwartz. Yeah. You, you talk about the guys like this VJ. You know, there are some there are some up, up-and-comers right now that are crushing it. They're kind of under under the radar and you know, you don't hear their name as a staple yet, um, but I, I, pro- I promise you that the old guard is, you know, it's going to be the stuff of, of books and in video. We're going to say, you remember when Rose did this? You remember when so-and-so did that three years I'm from okay now? Well, I'm just, 
you know, it's probably not the answer he wanted, but uh, no, no, but but I think I still think you should indulge him. I think what Jack wants to hear is right now. Let's just say, boom, twenty twenty Olympics, or it's it, let's just say it's twenty seventeen Olympics. Given the current athletes that are performing right now, or health, screw it, twenty sixteen, the athletes that did well in twenty sixteen. Who are your picks for male and female at an Olympic I event? Like, just, just, I like, uh, just to indulge Jack. I like uh, Alyssa Holly. I like Faye Stenning. Clearly, Lindsay Webster is still in the mix for the women. Those uh, are your top three. For the women. All right. And uh, for the boys. How they shake out that that any given day it could be, who knows? It's a crapshoot. Uh, right now, I still have to go with Ryan Atkins as, as a, a heavy favorite. I think that um, with the right circumstances, I think Hunter McIntyre is always a threat. Jeez, uh, I don't know. More. I don't know. More. Yeah, I'm thinking. Which which skinny mini bald man are you going to pick? I was going to just say it could be a, a Killian. <laughs> Killian's got a shot. Okay. Um um, Hobie Call, who knows? I mean, if it was this year, um, yeah, you know, those guys. Uh, uh, you know, I, I I'll tell you who's been racing really well is Glenn Race. He's been doing really well. Yeah. Um, you know, there's in the men's field, there's a lot of guys out there. It's tough. There you have. It's, it's a crapshoot any given day. But um, I, I, Ryan Atkins, and you know, I I I don't know. Uh, I don't know any given day. He's a threat. So. Miguel, thank you so much for sharing the time and helping me face all these questions. And sorry to those of you that we didn't get a chance to get around to your questions. We will try to do something for you in the future. Don't give up on us. We're going to we're give saving your questions. On we're saving media, your questions. On social yeah. media, we're, we're going to announce who the winners are. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day. Two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.